and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, February 28th, we are turning to another hymn for the season of Lent. It is number 431 in Lutheran Service Book, Not All the Blood of Beasts. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Delighted to be with you again. Pastor Roth, talk to us a little bit about the season of Lent, its role within the church year, and in the life of the Christian. So Lent is 40 days leading up to Easter. Now, it's not exactly 40 days, because the Sundays in Lent are called in Lent, not because uh, because they're not of Lent. And so it really would be 47 days if you were counting the Sundays. So each Sunday is a little Easter, and so technically, you know, fasts are, are not required to be observed and things like that. Of course, Lutherans make fasting optional anyway, but if one has chosen to impose a fast upon himself, um, the Sundays would be a little holiday from that if he chose. Um, So it's 40 days. It probably reflects the biblical pattern of 40 days, 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days of Jesus being tested in the wilderness by Satan. And so at least in the one-year series of readings, the first Sunday in Lent is, is always the temptation of our Lord, which, which nicely introduces us to that season. There's some very nice hymns that are associated with that as well, O Lord, throughout these 40 days. Um, and so that, that's a, a nice introduction to the season. Um, traditionally, Lent was, was observed as a penitential season uh, in which there was a focus on prayer, fasting, almsgiving. So self-denial and service of others is at the forefront. Absolutely. Now, one of the things we've talked about with the previous guests looking at these hymns for the season of Lent is that Lent isn't just a a woe is me sort of season. I feel really, really bad about my sins for 40 days. There's actually a a joy to the season of Lent within the midst of that. Do you you sense that as well, Pastor Roth? Well, absolutely, because always in view is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I really only emphasize the sort of external disciplines associated with Lent. But, um, you know, it's, it's always good. Now we're a couple weeks into Lent. So let's review the uh, Ash Wednesday address, which we heard a couple weeks ago. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, on this day, the church begins a holy season of prayerful and penitential reflection. Our attention is especially directed to the holy sufferings and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to talk about self-denial and things like that. But above all, the focus is on Christ. And so St. Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That doesn't expire in Lent. It continues throughout the year. So our joy is always in Jesus. And, And the Sundays are always there during Lent as little Easter's in which we can have fullness of joy. Do you have a favorite Lenten hymn, Pastor Roth? Um, I think that um, a lamb alone bears willingly uh, is probably um, my my favorite. Sounds it, like you use TLH. 
yeah, is that the wrong title? You know, it's a lamb funny. goes uncomplaining <laughs> forth. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as a pastor, you, you work with the hymnal that you have at hand and, you know, we're blessed at Grace to have Lutheran service builders so we can supplement the Lutheran hymnal with, with some of the newer hymns. And, um, and I get, boy, I, that the, the, uh, I get so confused sometimes because at home we have a stack of LSBs that we use for devotions. And so we sing all the hymns out of LSB at home. And, and when I get to church sometimes, I mean, I really can't just rely on memory. I always have to read the text that's on the page because the, the uh, poetry changes. That's right. So what, what do you love about that, that Gerhardt hymn? Well, it is focused first and foremost on Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, it, it emphasizes the mystery of, of the incarnation and our redemption, that it's not just that we've got this, this God who, you know, willingly makes a sacrifice um, of, of, you know, this, this perfect man and, and pours out his wrath upon him. Rather, the emphasis is on the fact that this was God's will, but it also is something that Jesus voluntarily undertakes for us. So um, there's a mystery there. We can't really get to the bottom of what's going on in the mind of God, but all we can do is rejoice in the fact that um, God punished his son for our sins, but that the son willingly showed the greatest love possible for us by laying down his life to make us God's friends. Yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful text. Do you get a few extra stanzas in TLH compared? There's four in Lutheran Service Book. Do you get more than that in TLH? I think there are six, but don't quote me on that. Okay. Um, yeah. Right. Um, so that that would be worth another hymn study. Well, we are going to look at that hymn during Holy Week here on Sharper Iron. A lamb goes uncomplaining forth. I think that's that's among my favorites as well. So lots of wonderful hymnody that we have during the season of Lent to point us to the hope that we have in Christ. The same is true of the hymn that we have for our consideration today, which is number 431 in Lutheran Service Book, Not All the Blood of Beasts. Pastor Roth, before we look at the text itself, is there any background on the author or the writing of this text that we should take a look at first? Sure. I would say this is one of my favorites as well. Um, and so I've sung this one dozens of times over the years, usually a couple times during Lent in, in the congregation. Um, the author is Isaac Watts, and he lived from 1674 to 1748, and he's known as the father of English hymnody. And at the time uh, that Watts is writing in the early 1700s, the English Protestants had been really mainly using uh, paraphrases of the Psalms in meter uh, with, I think there were new tunes that were written for them. Um, and, and so all of the, the singing that was done in church was basically from the Old Testament, from the Psalter, which is, of course, wonderful. And we actually have quite a few of those psalm paraphrases in our Lutheran hymnals today. But Watts felt that the exclusive emphasis on the Old Testament was limiting, and it did not allow the Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled in Christ. And so he, he really strongly felt that there needed to be hymns that brought in New Testament themes to show the fulfillment of the Old Testament and also used New Testament language because the Old Testament, of course, tells us about the Christ who is to come. The New Testament tells us about the Christ who has come, still comes, and will come again. So um, the Lutherans, of course, were way ahead of the curve on this. Um, they, the uh, the reformed aspects of of the um, Anglican Church um, 
really did lead them to be minimalist. And since, um, you know, the New Testament doesn't really have any hymns, um, whereas the Old Testament had an entire hymn book, the Psalter, they were like, well, let's just use that and stick with it. Um, one could say that's a conservative approach, but ultimately uh, the New Testament does encourage us to, you, you know, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And um, we do get a couple of, I think, hymns in the New Testament. So uh, the, the notion that we needed to stick only with the Old Testament, the Lutherans never even really considered that. And so some of the greatest hymns that we sing in our churches still today were written by Luther and other Lutherans. But anyway, so it took a it took a 150 years or so for the uh, the English hymns to sort of start being developed. And Watts is a pioneer, and we still sing quite a few of his hymns in our our hymnals. Um, I think there probably are more than a dozen in the Lutheran hymnal, and at least six or seven in LSB. Um, this hymn, yeah, I, just to, yeah, go ahead. to that, Pastor Roth, I, I looked up in the index of Lutheran Service Book. And I, I'm counting 14 different texts I see in Lutheran service book. It looks like one of them, the, I believe that's When I Survey the Wonders, uh, Wonderful Cross, is in there twice to do different tunes. So it looks like 14 different texts that we have in Lutheran service book from Isaac Watts. So certainly a, a very important influence to English hymnody. Yeah, and I, I think he was a great poet. Um, to his credit, he, he says in the introduction to his works, he really tried to kind of re refrain to some extent from being too sophisticated and really just wanted to make sure that these were texts that people could understand. And I've always noted that about his hymns, that they're very down to earth, um, but also really wonderful poetry. Yeah. This hymn was written in 1709, and uh, it was originally uh, just described as a, 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 a hymn about faith in the sacrifice of Christ. And so we tend to name our hymns after the first line. But of course, Luther called a mighty fortress, Psalm 46, because it was a paraphrase, a very loose right. paraphrase of Psalm 46. And so this is a, I, I like the Watts' title, right? A, a, a hymn about faith in the sacrifice of Christ. And that's exactly what he delivers as we go through it. Yeah, that's right. This is this is one where perhaps having the first line be the title, it suffers a little bit. Not all the blood of beasts. That's kind of a, a strange title for a hymn. But that's you said, faith in Christ, our sacrifice faith in, in the sacrifice of Christ, that's a good summary of what's here. Before we look at the text itself, Pastor Roth, uh, one thing that those who sing hymns may not always notice, when you look at the, the hymn and you look at the author information, sometimes, as is the case here, you'll see after the author's name and his date of birth and death, three little letters, A-L-T, which stands for altered. In this case, what do we... or is there... what do you... What do we know about what's altered from what Watts originally wrote, and how does that improve it? Yeah, so this is getting ahead into the fourth stanza. There are a couple of slight alterations in other stanzas, but I'd say they're more poetic than they are substantive. But there's a, a significant change in stanza four, where he talks about faith looking to the cross, and Watts's original line was, uh, the, the soul hopes her guilt was there. Now, I, I suppose, I think we've discussed before how hope is in, in our modern English a, a fairly weak word. You know, I, I hope it rains tomorrow or doesn't rain or whatever, and I have no idea one way or the other. I think that it's possible to um, understand this term more uh, biblically in the sense of a, a, a solid expectation. You know, I, I really 
am confident my hope was there. I mean, we hope for life everlasting doesn't mean that we're uncertain about its fulfillment. So I, I think that uh, it's possible that Watts's original line was is is acceptable at its own in its own time. But today we would ex- we would hear that that our soul hopes our guilt was on the cross would be an uncertainty. And so it's it's a better translation or I guess alternate alterate uh, an altered stanza. The LSB says, "I know my guilt was there," and that that expresses uh, much more strongly the faith that we have. Yeah, in, in English today, to say that I hope my guilt was there, the soul hopes her guilt was there, could lead to perhaps more of a, I suppose, a Calvinistic understanding of, a, well, Christ died for only the elect, and I hope I'm among the elect. That's not what we want to sing. Rather, we want to sing what's confessed here in this this version, I know my guilt was there, that Christ did indeed bear my guilt, just as he bore the guilt of the entire world. Oh, exactly. And um, I think it uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in um, Calvinism and in Roman Catholicism. Um, the the lack of certainty yeah. is there for different reasons. Um, it's possible that Watts will let a little bit of his Calvinism slip through. Um, now, I would also say he he really tried. He said that he tried to make his hymns as non-sectarian as possible. That is. Yeah. Um, that that he they would be able to be sung by Christians of different denominations, and I think he succeeds at that. At that, um, I don't know what was in the mind of the author, but as um, we were discussing before we went on the air, you know, when you come when it comes to studying hymns, they're always normed by Scripture, and while there might be poetic license, uh, we really have no idea what was in the mind of the author. So it's more reader response type uh, approach to these things. And the main thing is to get us to Jesus and to the solid word of the inspired and errant scriptures. All right. So with those things in mind, we turn to the the text of the hymn. Well, one more thing before. Pastor Roth, you mentioned that uh, Isaac Watts wanted to broaden his use of the Old Testament beyond the Psalms and to see how the Old Testament points to Christ. I know we'll look at the individual stanzas and more specific texts in mind, but in general, what's the Old Testament background that we need to keep in mind for this hymn? Well, appropriately, as he says, it's a faith in the sacrifice of Christ. The background is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And so I think um, we're going to glance back to Leviticus uh, especially and and recognize that uh, because the, the text is inspired, I think, by the epistle to the Hebrews, and you, you really need to read Hebrews and Leviticus next to each other. Um, that's going to be the main point of reference. And so we're going we're gonna to see then that the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament were not an end in themselves, but they were rather a foreshadowing or type of the sacrifice of Christ. And we'll see in, in the opening lines of, of this stanza, that, or this hymn, that uh, the... For the Jews, the sacrifices are an end in themselves, but for Christians, we recognize they were pointing forward to the the once and for all sacrifice Christ would make on the cross. All right, let's take a look at this hymn. This is stanza one of the hymn, Not All the Blood of Beasts. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give a guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. That is stanza one of Watts' hymn. So, Pastor Roth, we've got one long, well, not too long, of a sentence here. It's all one sentence in stanza one. Uh, talk to us first about the matter of blood. That's a central theme to the sacrificial system, to this hymn. Uh, why the why blood? Well, 
partly because God says so, um, I suppose is the fundamental <laughs> reason. Answer. Right. Be- because, <laughs> you, you know, it, it kind of grosses us out, us out to think about all the, the uh, blood sacrifices of the Old Testament. And, and so for the squeamish among us, uh, we don't maybe like to hear about it a lot. And, you know, I, I don't really mind the sight of blood myself so much, but I still when I go to give blood at the uh, uh, when when they well, if I go give a pint of blood or if, if they're drawing blood for blood testing, I don't look at the needle in my arm. You know, I, I don't like it. So um, anyway, but the Old Testament does clearly teach that the life of a being is in its blood. And so the sense of a life being given for another life is is obviously there. And so the Lord does choose to set up a system in which the lifeblood of animals is given to cover the sins of very real human beings so that their lives do not have to be given. Um, So it's the the notion of sacrifice. One dying in the place of another is there. Then also, as I mentioned a minute ago, just because God said so, he could have chosen some other system in which we just used only water or, you know, any other sort of substance. But this is the particular substance that he attaches to the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament. Um, But it was not as much a cleansing of the conscience as it was a cleansing of the flesh. And Mm. so as the book of Hebrews very clearly says, and as Watts says in the stanza, the blood of beasts could not give a guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain of sin. so the Old Testament rites and ceremonies were more for the purification of the flesh so that people could enter into the tabernacle and temple and worship there. And so these were preparatory and necessary for them to enter into the presence of God, but they didn't really fulfill uh, the, the full cleansing of the human being. They were for the cleansing of the flesh, the removing of external sins, but they were not to allow us to stand before God with a cheerful conscience, knowing that our sins are forgiven before God and we can come to him as a dear father uh, invites his dear children to come to him. Mm. So the the matter of blood in the Old Testament, as you said, God could have chosen to do it whatever way. This is the way he chose to do it. As he teaches about that in the Old Testament, he talks about the life being in the blood. The writer of Hebrews picks up on that thought that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, mm-hmm. so that this, this shedding of blood is a central aspect to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. One life is given in place of another, but there's something about the life of these animals, blood, or excuse me, the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and sometimes turtle doves, that blood is not sufficient to do the job completely. And as you, as you were saying, it's not sufficient to give the guilty conscience peace. You, you especially focused there. Talk about that matter of the, the peace of conscience. Why, why don't we have the peace of conscience? Where, where do we actually find that peace of conscience? Right. So the, uh, the conscience uh, is, is something that is it either can well the, the New Testament talks about it in different ways. You can have a good conscience in which you don't know anything against yourself, any particular guilt, um, or a pure conscience or a clean conscience. And no human being by his own works can ever completely purify his conscience. There has to be something external that comes to him and cleanses it. And the book of Hebrews says the only way that your conscience can ever be completely clean is by the blood of Christ. So, so Hebrews 9 says that Christ entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He contrasts that in Hebrews 10 with the Jewish sacrificial system, which had sacrifices on a daily basis, whereas Christ is a once and for all redemption that cleanses us in body and soul so that our consciences can be clear as we come before God. And as Luther points out in the large catechism, you know, if your conscience is impure, you're never going to be cheerful in God's presence. You're never going to be confident in prayer. And so uh, Hebrews 10 also then will talk about how we, we come before God with our consciences sprinkled clean with pure water, which is the blood of Christ poured upon us in holy baptism, so that we can actually draw near to God with, with confidence before him. Hmm. So when it comes to the blood of beasts being unable to give the guilty conscience peace, is, well, maybe there's there's at least two things I can think of as to the reason why they're not able. Uh, one is that they're the blood of beasts, and so there needs to be a different blood, a better blood that will come, and that's where this, this hymn is going to take us. But also, I think, in in connection with that, then the other reason is that the blood of beasts, this, this is something that has to be repeated over and over again, and I guess in, in that sense, then your conscience is always wondering, well, okay, I, I'm, I got the sacrifice, the blood has been shed on my behalf for this sin, but well, here's another sin, and another sin, another sin, and I need another animal, another animal, another animal. So that repetitive nature, I think, is, is part of the reason that there's no peace of conscience from the, the blood of beasts. Right. Hebrews 10 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So there's this almost sense of futility there, and, oh, well, we just got to return to the same thing tomorrow. Now, we could slip into a misunderstanding of the New Testament and think that um, we're never completely forgiven of our sins unless, you know, just that moment after receiving absolution or just that moment after baptism or just that moment after Lord's Supper. Well, I've just sinned again, therefore I can never be pure before God. But what we learn in, in the New Testament is that as we stand in a state of grace, the Holy Spirit, to use catechism language, daily and richly forgives my sins and the sins of all believers. So we actually, being justified by faith, stand in this state of grace in which God is in a constant state of not imputing our sins to us, but those sins have been imputed to Christ. He's offered, he's, he's offered himself once for all for this eternal redemption. And so while we do rightly return to absolution and the Lord's Supper as places where we receive forgiveness of sins and ongoing cleansing, we need to recognize that there's a both and. We both receive forgiveness there, but we also remain in a state of forgiveness all by God's grace. Yeah, that's a really important thing to, to keep in mind so that those sins that we don't confess or forget to confess, don't trouble us lest we think they are not forgiven. Uh, it's not about the listing of sins, but as you said, this being in the state of grace, I am baptized. This is who I am. Christ's righteousness covers me. Or to use the the next image from this first stanza, the stain has been washed away. So we talked about consciences having peace. Here we have now stains being washed away. Talk about that imagery connected to sin and forgiveness. Yeah, I think there's a famous line in Shakespeare about trying to wash out, you know, the blood guilt. And um, and so, <clears throat> you know, our, our sins do stain us. They, they stick to us. Paul talks about in, in Romans 6, 
you know, what, what fruit were you getting from all those sins that you were committing of which you are now so ashamed? And I think of the, the shame and the stain kind of go together. It's something that you blush every time you think about, I can't believe I did that. And yet Watts is telling us here in the book of Hebrews reiterates that the blood of Christ is something that can wash out the most significant um, stained conscience. And, and think about uh, Isaiah 1, right? Where, you know, come and let us reason together. Though your, your sins be like scarlet, they will be white as snow. And that, that language could be picked, pick, Watts might be picking up that language there as well, that the blood of Christ is like this ultimate bleaching agent that purifies our stained consciences. Yeah, that's right. It, this has always been one of the most striking images in the scriptures, uh, both from Isaiah chapter 1 and then the way that St. John sees the saints in heaven in Revelation chapter 7, that they're clothed in white robes, and how did those robes become white, or how did they get those white robes? They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and that is such a, a striking image, because you know, if you've ever if you ever cut yourself while you're shaving and you get a little bit of the the blood on your maybe your white t-shirt or the the white washcloth, you can see that red stain. But in the blood of Christ, you have a blood that actually cleanses stains. And so that's such a such a striking image. It really is. You know, if you ever want to get blood out of uh, the blood stain out of something, just put an ice cube on it and let it sit there and it will actually break it down and then you can wash it and it'll come clean. But uh but but Christ's blood is that much more powerful, right? It, it, we don't need to do anything. Rather, as he applies his blood to us by his means of grace and washes it away. It's not by anything we need to do to get the stain out. Yeah, the blood of beasts cannot do this. It is not sufficient, but there is a better blood, a richer blood, a nobler name that is ours in Christ Jesus. That's where Watts is going to take us next in this hymn, and we're going to pick that next stanza up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Carl Roth this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, February 28th. We're studying hymn number 431 in Lutheran service book, Not All the Blood of Beasts. Our guest today is Pastor Carl Roth. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, as we move from the first stanza into the second, there's a bit of a contrast. On the one hand, in stanza one, 
Isaac Watts has written that not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain, so they couldn't do something. But in stanza two, we have but Christ. So there's a contrast. Help us to, to rightly understand the nature of that contrast, because you made a comment prior that I, I didn't mention at the time, but you, you almost described the Old Testament sacrificial system more in terms of the way we would speak of sacraments, that God attached his forgiveness to this blood in the Old Testament. So make sure we understand the nature of the contrast between stanza one and two. Yeah, I think that thinking of the Old Testament sacrificial system as the Old Testament sacramental system is not a bad way of looking at it. Um, it's it's easy for us to slip into this almost anti Jewish or anti-Old Testament polemic and say, well, you know, they didn't know what they were doing or they didn't have all the good things that we have. But that's not really the point that Watts is making here, nor does Hebrews approach things that way. It's rather that these things were preparatory and you could say deficient because they couldn't accomplish all the things the New Testament could, but they were nonetheless necessary. And at very, in many and various ways, at very, in various times, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, as Hebrews 1 says. So there's a fulfillment that comes in Christ, but we, we don't want to denigrate the Old Testament system. Um, Watts is simply highlighting the fact that the blood of beasts on Jewish altars could not accomplish the things that Christ could. So that's why we have this, but Christ, the heavenly lamb in the New Testament. Um, we had the lambs of the Old Testament. The Passover lamb was something that God used to accomplish redemption for his people. But now we've got something greater and better. And that's what the second stanza moves us to. So stanza two, but Christ, the heavenly lamb takes all our sins away a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. That stands a two of Isaac Watts' hymn, Not All the Blood of Beasts. Pastor Roth, you mentioned in terms of Christ being the heavenly lamb, you mentioned the connection to the Passover lamb. What other Old Testament lambs, sacrifices should we have in mind when Christ is called a lamb? Well, one that certainly predates the Passover is the sacrifice of Isaac, or the not-quite-sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, uh, but Abraham had said with confidence when Isaac was like, where, where are we going to get a sacrifice to offer? Uh, Abraham said in Genesis 22, 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so that wonderful scene, which is also terrifying to think about anybody having to go through such a, a trial, which I don't think God, now that Christ has come, God would never ask any of us to sacrifice our children. But this was a one, one time Again, preparatory or prefiguring type sacrifice. Um, Abraham had the knife lifted up and was about to strike down his son, but the angel came and told him, don't do it. Now I know that you trust me. Uh, and so then there was this uh, ram caught in the thicket, which proves to be the lamb that the Lord would provide for the burnt offering. So the liturgy of sacrifice was interrupted there in Genesis 22 but it is ultimately fulfilled completely in Christ because God actually does what he didn't ultimately require of Abraham. God requires of himself the sacrifice of his own son, and the lamb alone bears willingly um, our sins on the cross and voluntarily gives himself up as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. Yeah, well, and this, of course, is the preaching that John the Baptist picks up in John chapter 1, where he points to Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have that very language here in Watts' second stanza. 
We do. And then and then John also is the author of Revelation. And and so we see later on that uh, in Revelation 12, the those who are victorious in Christ have conquered by the blood of the lamb. And so we we certainly recognize the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world um, is Christ. Um, so so this was something that that we definitely um, we owe to to uh, to John to pick up on as a New Testament theme, um, John the Baptist and then John the Evangelist. We also would think maybe of Isaiah 53, where like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. So Christ opened not his mouth when he was crucified. Um, so I think Isaiah 53 would also be in view when we talk about a sacrificial lamb. So he is the heavenly lamb, Christ is. He's the lamb of God. And because of that, then he is the sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than, than they, that is the, the blood of beasts. Take us into that second line of this stanza. Yeah, so the, the sacrifice of nobler name, you know, Jesus is the one who has the name that is above every name, that at the, knee, uh, at, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you could find no greater name than his, the name Jesus. I, I suspect Watts probably has in mind, too, the fact that Jesus' name means the Lord saves. And so he saves, the, uh, the angel says he will save his people from their sins. And the way he does that is by being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, Pastor Roth, then, with that, the sorry, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they, the reason, then, that Christ's blood is a richer blood is because this is actually the blood of the, the man who is also God. Absolutely. I also think of 1 Peter 1 here, where we were ransomed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so uh, no, no human being can redeem the life of another, no animal blood can redeem our life, but the blood of the man who is God, we can point to the cross and say, there God shed his blood, there God died for me. And so because he is the God-man, it is able to be for the sins of the entire world. Hmm. All right, so with those things in mind, we turn now to stanza three, where now it becomes very personal. My faith would lay its hand on that dear head of thine, while as a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. That again is stanza three of the hymn, Not All the Blood of Beasts. So we've been talking about more universal things of, of the blood of beasts and Christ the heavenly lamb, but now it, it becomes for me and how I respond in my faith. Uh, the first line of this, well, really the whole the whole sentence of stanza three the idea of my faith laying its hand on Christ's head. You mentioned the book of Leviticus. I think this is one of the places where we especially need to turn there to find out the, the image that Watts is using here. Yeah, so in Leviticus 16, um, Moses learns from the Lord that this is what Aaron is supposed to do, Aaron being the, the first priest, high priest. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So this is the scapegoat upon whom the, the sins of Israel are all placed. And that, and that, of course, is pointing forward to Christ being the ultimate scapegoat. And <clears throat> the laying on of the hand upon the head is the image that Watts is picking up on here. It seems a little strange to us, but 
I think it's perfectly clear once you see the Old Testament background. This is a sort of way of transferring guilt by the laying on of the hand. Now, what's interesting is that when we do confession and absolution or, or you know, the rite of confirmation and, and baptism, we have laying on of hands upon the head in which there's a blessing being transferred. But it's first, confession is like laying on the hand upon Christ's head and transferring the guilt. And then he lays his hand upon us in the sacraments to remove our guilt and transfer his righteousness to us. So there's a sort of a dual uh, physical movement going on there. But this stanza is about confession, not absolution. It's also worth noting as you move into the, the third and fourth lines, we, uh, there's some confusing terminology that we use in confession and absolution. When you go to confession, you're a penitent. And that's the language that Watts is picking up on here. The term confessor is technically used of the person who's hearing a confession. So, we, you know, it sounds in English like a confessor is somebody who's confessing. And actually, in other contexts, it can be used that way. But in the con context of confession and absolution, the penitent is the person confessing. The confessor is the one hearing and speaking absolution there. So, okay, Leviticus 16, with you mentioned the scapegoat, this is the Day of Atonement that we're talking right. about, which, which really, within the book of Leviticus, is the central chapter in the book itself and the, the central theology of the whole book, that on this day when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies for that one time and, and sprinkles the blood upon the, the Ark of the Covenant, upon the mercy seat, and then you have the, the scapegoat that's sent out into the wilderness, again, with the sins of the people, so that the sins are literally taken away. This, then, is, is the experience for the penitent, the one who is doing the confessing, as if I am standing there in the, in the place of Aaron and putting my own sins onto Christ for him to take them away. I mean, that's the, that's the for me of the gospel, that my sins are actually on Christ when he takes them to the cross. Yeah, uh, it's just beautiful imagery. Now, if you really think about it, it, it almost makes you reluctant to do it, right? How is it that I could possibly place my guilt upon someone else. You know, you think about Judas, right? Judas, Judas, um, he, he recognized his guilt. He recognized that he needed his sins to be atoned for. And his impulse was wrong in thinking that he needed to take care of himself. Rather, he needed to lay his hand upon Christ's head and transfer the guilt of betraying his Lord back onto Christ who was dying for his sins. So even if we feel reluctant about this, um, we shouldn't, because that would be contrary to what our Lord has willed for us. Um, one of the aspects of Luther's rite of confession is um, the, the penitent is supposed to say to the confessor, you know, let, let me uh, confess my sins. Uh, oh, actually, maybe it's the confessor who says this, right? Let us confess our sins in order to fulfill God's will. It's God's will that you confess your sins. In First John 1, if, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if or when would be probably a better translation. When we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to cleanse us, to give us forgiveness of sins. So we should have absolutely no reluctance in approaching Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and saying, Jesus, here's my sin, take it away. He's the one who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the one who said, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast him out. 
And the reason he's there for you is specifically so you can take your sin, that great burden, and lay it upon him. He's the one who wants to take that burden and, in fact, has already paid for that burden on the cross. And what a blessed exchange it is, because then he applies his forgiveness and righteousness to you. I mean, so what you're saying sounds a lot like also when Jesus speaks to the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and, and he tells them that Jesus, he says he didn't come for the those who are well, for those who are righteous. He came for the sick. He came for the sinners. So to, to your point then, if you see your sin, then go to Christ. That's that's exactly who he has come for, is the sinner, and that's the one who receives the gifts that he has to offer. If you're not a sinner, you're not going to have any use for Jesus, right? He's the, the one who takes away the sin of the world. So uh, he's just eager and constantly beckoning you to come to him, no matter what the sin is, every last one of them. Now, it's true, Paul says, you know, shall we sin more so that grace may increase? You died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? So there is a place in Christianity, certainly for the emphasis on renewal of life, mortification of the flesh, self-denial as Lent is is there to remind us to be humble and repentant. But we should never be reluctant. We should not hesitate in the slightest to come to Christ with our great burden. And also to tie it in with the language of this stanza, we should not be reluctant to go to our pastor who's been put there by the Lord to be a, a mouthpiece of forgiveness. And when when you confess your sins to him directly, uh, those sins go into his ears and die there because they're forgiven. And he's never going to share it with anybody else. It's between you and the Lord. And if that is something that can bring peace to your conscience, then that is a place you should be going. Yeah, I, I too thought of the imagery of this stanza with the penitent placing his hand on the head of Christ to give the sins to Christ. But then, as you pointed out earlier, the way that the the pastor, the one who hears the confession, places his hand in the stead of Christ upon the head of the penitent to assure that now the the righteousness of Christ is being given to you, that as the first stanza brought out, that peace of conscience that you sorely need, and the cleansing of the stain of sin that you need, that is now being placed upon you in the words of the absolution. As you said, that maybe goes a bit beyond where this imagery is in the stanza, but I think it's a fantastic connection to make so that when I go to my pastor to confess my sin, I can see myself putting my sins upon Christ and him gladly taking those sins from me. And then through the pastor putting his hand on my head, I know that Christ has now clothed me with his righteousness, and I receive that gladly in faith. Absolutely. I think that also ties in nicely with the next stanza, uh, which sort of continues that same same idea of, of my faith and my soul looking to Christ. And one of the great places to look to him is in Confession and Absolution. So stanza four of our hymn, My soul looks back to see the burden thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree. I know my guilt was there. There stands a four of Isaac Watts' hymn, Not All the Blood of Beasts. So, Pastor Roth, just a, a matter of, of grammar and language, my soul looks back to see, is it back historically, back in, what's the, or does that just make the meter work? I, I don't know. That's. Do you know why, why my soul looks back to see? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think um, I would have to take this as temporal, 
Um, okay. Maybe in the sense of looking back to the historical event of his crucifixion. I don't know where you would. Um, I, maybe there's a slight echo of the um, the sacrifice of Isaac, in which they they kind of look. I don't know if it's behind them, but they they look over and mm. and see the ram caught in the thicket. So uh, maybe it's they, we could tie those images together that we're about to see ourselves destroyed for our sins. But then we glance over or we glance behind us and there we see Christ as the lamb bearing that load on the cross for us. But mm. we, I think the surest way to go with the, would be temporal. That is, I look back to the, um, well, to the cross. We talk about looking back to the cross. Um, sure. and, and that is because it happened before we were even conceived in the womb. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious because I just the, the poetry sometimes it's not always, as, as we said earlier, as, as obvious to know exactly what's in the mind of the writer. I like all those options. So my soul looks back to see the burden thou didst bear while hanging on the cursed tree. Maybe pick up the thought of the, the cursed tree. We recently studied the book of Galatians here on Sharper Iron, and that, that came up from that book as well. Oh, yeah. So uh, Galatians picks up on the language of Deuteronomy that a hanged man is cursed by God. And and so Paul uses that applied to Christ. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of law by becoming a curse for us. And he becomes the curse in order to make us blessed. So this is one of those paradoxical things that God is always doing, right? That doesn't, it doesn't like blood washing away something, right? Wash your robes in the blood of the lamb. Um, the Lord can do anything he wants. And so he's able to take things that seem opposite and and uh, um, use them for his purposes. So here, Christ takes the curse that all of us deserve for our sins. And that is a tremendous burden. You know, you think about what did he suffer there? The agony, the torment physically, but then above all the spiritual anguish of suffering under the wrath of God for all of our sins. Christ suffers hell for us there, right? His descent into hell is actually victorious. Um, one of the early church fathers said everything he didn't assume, he did not redeem. And so he actually assumes every aspect of our human nature and takes our sin upon himself. At the Jordan River, he is loaded upon his back is our sins. And, and so he actually dies for sin, or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, he became sin for us. So there on the cross, God is punishing sin. Christ is suffering hell and all of its torments for us there uh, in order to redeem us and make us eternally blessed. Mm. Yeah, just it's striking to hear him call it the cursed tree. In another of Isaac Watts' hymns, it's the when I survey the wondrous cross. So cursed in the sense that Christ bears the curse for us on this cross. And now when I look at it, it is a wondrous cross to know that he is hanging there for me. Or as this hymn puts it, I know my guilt was there. We talked about this line briefly earlier when we were talking about the alteration made. Uh, how is it that I know my guilt is there upon Christ on the cross? Well, um, this is, again, 2 Corinthians, that, you know, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So you can ask yourself the question, am I in the world? Am I part of the world? Well, yeah. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave. So uh, Christ died for all, Paul puts it elsewhere. Um, he is the one who suffers for the masses. He lays down his life for, as a ransom for the masses. 
the many there doesn't quite get it. It's the masses of all human beings. So I know that Christ died for everybody. And if I'm in the world, I'm somebody, I know that he died there for me. You know, you were you're talking about how he could Watts could speak of the cursed tree here, but then also the wondrous cross elsewhere. The cross of Christ is the ultimate proclaimer of law and gospel. Because every time I look at the Christ and see Christ suffering there, I know I should be thinking to myself, that's what I deserve. That's exactly where I should be. And I should be the one receiving a curse. But then the great blessing of the cross is the preaching of the gospel, that he's dying there for me so that I may live. Yeah, what a what a marvelous thing to have that confidence in Christ to know my guilt is there upon him and that is done for me. There needs there need be no doubt. I can have this confidence, this certainty that what Christ has done is mine. And so in that confession and absolution that we were talking about, there is a wonderful certainty and confidence to know that yes, even these sins that I am placing upon Christ, he is taking those away, and he is clothing me with his righteousness, that guilt is removed. All And it, isn't it—sometimes we don't even think about this, Pastor Roth, but notice how many different ways. We've talked about washing away stain. We've talked about sins being taken away. Here we have guilt, particularly, that's being putting upon Christ, too. All of the, all of the aspects. We've mentioned shame as well. All of this— Christ removes from us in in his work for us. Exactly. And and if you um Lutheran service builder, you know, or the Lutheran service book can categorize hymns based on their themes. And this is obviously a Lenten hymn, but it really falls under the theme of justification. And justification is a multifaceted gem that picks up on all these different things that we've been talking about: righteousness, guilt, shame. You know, it's it's very expansive. And so it's it, this is a wonderful justification hymn. So we turn now to stanza five, the last hymn in Lutheran service, or last stanza in Lutheran service book. Believing, we rejoice to see the curse remove. We bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing His bleeding love. That is the last stanza of Isaac Watts' hymn, "Not All the Blood of Beasts." So here we have faith, we have joy, and we have singing. Help us into this last stanza. You know, up until this point, it's really focused a little bit more on my myself, my sin, and then also the objective event of Christ on the cross. But here we 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 move to the subjective element of faith. Believing is the first line here. And so we're reminded then that the justification is something God has accomplished for us in Christ, but it is only something that can be received by faith. We can only receive the benefits of it. And then in, in Romans 5, because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then Paul goes on to say, we rejoice in all sorts of things, even in our afflictions. So that connection between faith and joy is very strong. Um, so, so this stanza really sums everything up nicely. It takes everything that's been, that's led up to this point and says, I believe all of this. And now I know that I can rejoice because my Redeemer lives. The curse of my sin has been taken away. We see the to see the curse remove. That's a a little bit awkward, right? I, I think some of them put a D on the end, right, to see the curse removed. But that must be some older language. But it, either way, it just means that the the curse has been taken away. And in, and then uh, this is interesting. The word bless, of course, means 
it can mean two things. It can mean God blessing us, which is not exactly what it means here. It can mean also praising God, but, but we, we see the curse removed. And so now we bless God in the sense of praising him because he's blessed us so richly in Christ. Yeah, well, so, and we bless the lamb still. So notice he is the, the lamb. He's the one who's taken our sins away, who's given his sacrifice, even to the point here that as the hymn concludes, we are singing his bleeding love. Mm-hmm. You know, we we preach Christ crucified. Talk to us about the significance of the fact that it's his bleeding love. Yeah, there, well, Hebrew says, you know, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And the ultimate act of love that God showed toward us was in giving his son, Jesus, laying down his life for us. And so the more that we can talk about the blood of Christ cleansing us from all sin, the better. And so if we if we just spend the next week thinking about that line, we sing his bleeding love, it'll just continually wash over us. You know, the, the, I mentioned earlier that we, we tend to think in temporal terms about receiving forgiveness from the sacraments, but we need to recognize that our faith is constantly going back to the Word of God as it's been implanted in our minds through the Scriptures, as well as wonderful hymns like this that use poetic language to convey the truth of God's Word. And so as I think about the bleeding love of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I can constantly think about His blood washing over me, cleansing my conscience, and providing me also then with strength for a new life. Yeah, that the think of the hymns of the book of Revelation, how often they sing to the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who is slain. He has sacrificed himself in our place, that sacrifice, those scars that he bears, that is our righteousness, our justification, our redemption, and that is the reason we praise him, we bless him with cheerful voice, rejoicing even in this season of Lent. Pastor Carl Roth is pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. He's been helping us today to study the hymn, Not All the Blood of Beasts. It's number 431 in Lutheran Service Book. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this Lenten hymn, or you'd like to let us know what your favorite hymn for the season of Lent is, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org store.